It's Monday, F31. F, of course, as you have now learned, is January. We're going to be in February tomorrow. That's G, by the way. And this is Market Call. I'm Guy Adami, and I'm joined, as always, by Dan Nathan. And in just a few minutes, short minutes, the great Carter Braxtonworth of Worth Charting will be joining as well. Today's Market Call is brought to you by FactSet. Financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And of course, open exchange because they manage virtual meetings that matter. Man, Dan, F, letter F or January has been a bit ugly here for market participants. But on this last day of the month, let's see if we get a bit of a recovery. You know, guys, sometimes as talking heads, you fall into certain little traps. You know, you have little crutches as they speak, you know, and I feel like every year that I've been in the business or at least talking about markets, when we have those kind of late December melt-ups, I think I always say the higher we go here into your little ho-ho rally or your Christmas rally, the harder we fall in January. Now, that doesn't always happen, the harder we fall in January. It happened this month. I mean, what happened this month was taking out, in my opinion, months and months and months of excess. But the excess had to do with what investors were willing to pay in the stock market for stories that really haven't been changing a whole heck of a lot. If anything, the stories or the fundamentals had been decelerating, right? And so to me, you know, this is one where everybody wants to blame Wall Street. Oftentimes, people want to blame their favorite pundit on TV or something like that. But this was on investors, what they were willing to pay for stocks in a decelerating environment when interest rates were very, very well. I guess you would want to call it just you know, clearly dictated that they were going to be going higher, and that should have been affecting valuations. No question. And obviously, a Federal Reserve, which you know, last decade or longer has had your back, now a Federal Reserve that seemingly is flipping the switch the other way or changing gears, rightly so, by the way. But again, the old mantra is don't fight the Fed when they're adding liquidity. Well, the same thing should be said when they're starting to take it away. We'll see. A lot of people are saying sell the rallies, and we've heard it from many different people. Now, Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley saying this thing. We remain uninspired. By the way, a word that you don't hear in songs often, but it's in Bruce Springsteen's song, I believe, Jersey Girl, but I think that was written by John Waite, but that's another story for another time. But I agree with him. I mean, these rallies have been a bit uninspiring, and rallies are being sold, Dan. I think that's going to continue for a while. Yeah, I mean, listen, when you have this sort of violent correction as far as sentiment, forget we're going to talk to Carter on the technicals and kind of get his take on the environment in general. But when you have this just kind of melt up and then just kind of the, you know, elevator down sort of situation, they just can't fix themselves in just a very short period of time, right? And so from an investor sentiment, oftentimes you'll see, you know, early in the year willing to take the sort of risk that you might not be in the end of the year. And I think it's really different between what retail thinks about, you know, performance in the stock market market versus institutions. Institutions want their books or their portfolios marked up to the tippy top at the very end of the year. And then they know they have 12 months to kind of make back any near term kind of negative performance, if you will. Right. And so but retail shouldn't be thinking about it that way. Right. Retail should be thinking about how does this portfolio do over time because they're not marking it to the end of a quarter or the end of the year, that sort of thing. So listen, in my eye, you're just not going to have you might have the sort of reversal that we had last week 
week off of the lows. And it was choppy getting to where we did by the end of the week in the S&P 500. But I still think we're in a one step forward, two steps back sort of market. No, no question about it. And listen, volatility remains somewhat elevated here. So we'll see. Again, these things don't resolve themselves in the course of a week or two. It takes a lot longer, especially, again, when you had a Fed that's sort of reversing yep. course and you have valuations that were stretched for years going into this. I, I think the market's yep. got some work to do still. And that 4,000 level is fair value. You can understand why that makes sense because that's really where we took off from last April or thereabouts, Dan. Yeah, no doubt. And Mike Wilson at Morgan Stanley, I think he has a 4,400-year-end price target in the S&P 500, which we are just above here. You know, listen, we're talking about sentiment. We're talking about things that are on top of our mind. But one of the major inputs that we like to use, and one of the reasons why we've been friends with Carter Braxton were for 15 years or so, guys, because he helps decode this stuff. And looking at the charts is really helpful. Carter, welcome to Market Call Charts. Buddy. Ben, how are you? So yeah, lots of moving parts. And you know, it's always just the, the very subject at hand is what's the primary data point and what's the secondary data point? Is the bounce the primary data point or is the sell-off the primary data point and the bounce is secondary? I think that's what it is. And that's what you're intimating, meaning there's damage done and you always get bounces after violent sell-offs. But is the bounce enough to really repair the circumstance at hand? Uh, meaning there are those I'm sure who are betting that this is yet another time to get long to make new all-time highs quickly. I think the odds of that are exceedingly low. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Carl, well, I'm sorry, Dan, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, Guy, you brought up volatility being elevated and you've been kind of targeting the VIX. And last week you had that move above like, all of these vol spikes that we've had in the VIX over the last year or so. And if you look at the chart, I don't even know if we have it. That doesn't really matter. You see that it's a very similar pattern here. You know, you have that big spike and then you have this period of chop and the VIX remains elevated, right? And I saw some stats about like put purchases last week by retail and it was just kind of excessive. And, you know, but then you see this sort of, um, you know, move lower, which usually corresponds with a move higher in the S&P. So as far as we're concerned, you know, we're I think we're all kind of in the camp that the likelihood of new highs is not great. But how do you trade this market? Like looking at the S&P 500 right here, because it's kind of tough to fade. Like what are the points in which you kind of want to see the rally or the bounce off the lows, where does it get exhausted? And then when do you look to like kind of either take profits or fade the move? We've got a great chart here. Look at this chart and then look at the next one. Maybe we can toggle. One is with the moving average, right? This is the S&P with its 150 day. And what's happening now is it's starting to flatten. I mean, the definition, now there's the actual, if you think about it, moving average is an automated trend line. We can draw the lines, it takes a lot of time, or we use an automated line. What's happening is, that it's starting to bend. If you look at the 150 day, it's starting to flatten. But here's the thing. Can you throw back to the 150 day or throw back to that actual trend line? Sure, it's kind of happening now. And why does that become a difficult level? There is supply above, or said differently, there is memory, one of two types. People who were hurt, lost money during this sell-off, who have yet to act because they didn't want to dump it. But now they've had a real reprieve losses recoup, not all, but much money given back. And so you have people above who, if and as the S&P climbs higher, will look to sell into the rally where their cost base is higher and they're recouping. Now there's the second kind of memory, those who bought well, dumb luck or brilliance, the most hapless newbie into the market who bought the low just a day or two ago, or George Soros himself, the biggest and best. Meaning once you buy something, you start to get, we're up 6% off the low already. You get eight, nine, 10. You get the memory from below. 
People who bought well, like, wow, this is a quick trade. I made some easy money. This could fade. I should book this. So the higher you go, you encounter supply from above, capital looking to recoup losses, as well as supply from below. People who bought well, who see substantial gains quickly, who look to book those gains. And let's toggle again, because I just like saying it, and that doesn't mean I necessarily want to do it. But to your point about that 150 day now starting to roll over, we haven't seen that type of action probably now going on 18 months, if not longer. And that is suggestive of exactly what you're talking about, a change in dynamics here. And I think you have to be respectful of that. So yes, you can see these rallies back up to that trend line or the 150-day moving average. But unlike the last effectively decade, I think these are going to be sold now aggressively instead of these dips being bought aggressively, CBW. I think that's exactly right. I think you got the NDX we're going to take a look at as well, because it's going to look hauntingly similar, as they say. I think the SPX seems a little cleaner, but this is a very similar chart. It's a very similar chart. And what's important here, too, is just if you're going to use moving averages, I would invite you to try the 150-day. Here is one of the biggest aggregates in in the world, the NDX. And look at it. It touches the 150-day to the penny. Do you know where the 200-day moving average is? Way below that. It didn't serve any purpose for the last two years. Can you throw back here? Sure. But should rallies be sold? I think so. Carter, help us out here for a second and, and explain to the, the viewer here why you're, you know, most most people quote the 200-day moving average when they're looking at these charts. You've like steadfastly been on the 150-day. What's the difference between that 50 days and, and why is it that you focus on the 150? Sure. Well, there's a, there's a lot. It's a, there's a big show. I spent a lot of time and did a lot of studies early on in my career. I had a teacher and mentor. We did a lot of this together some 30 years ago, and there was a hit rate that was higher with the 150 versus the 200. But let me just say this about the 200. I've asked people for three decades, well, why do you use the 200? And you know the answer? I've gotten three. One is, uh, well, that was what was on my computer. What? When you sat down, it was just there. So you started driving the car because what? William O'Neill said to do it? (laughs) Or it was was your default on Bloomberg or, or FactSet or any other chart service? The second is... Well, that's, um, that's the number of uh, trading days in a year. Well, no, no, it's not. <laughs> Five times 52 weeks doesn't get you to 200 trading. And then the third is, well, everyone else is using it. Those are not acceptable. Yeah. yeah. So it seems 150 works very well for you. It seems like over here at Risk Versal Media, we should be locking our fax set machines the 150 day here. One last point here, because if you look at the NASDAQ, you know, is down still 12 or so percent from its all-time highs made in November. We spent some time talking with you over the last few weeks that the NASDAQ never confirmed any of the new highs in the S&P 500 that we saw in December and even in early January. And so now the S&P is down about six and a half percent. The NASDAQ still down about 10 and a half percent or so from its all-time highs. What do you make of that relative underperformance in the NASDAQ? And is it likely to be the sort of thing where the NASDAQ goes through an extended period of time because it's obviously higher multiples, very heavy tech before it gets back to its new highs? Is there one that you'd really like to play for a bounce back more than the other, the S&P versus the NASDAQ? Well, I suppose it would be the S&P because the NASDAQ, and here's the other thing, this NASDAQ we're looking at right now already has the Microsoft and Apple bounce in it. If you maybe get the Google bounce and the Facebook bounce, we'll see, or not, Amazon. But the big weights, we've already heard from them, and it's not really fixing the problem. I'd rather do something like the IGV, which is really destroyed. It's an ETF for software, and do that as a spread versus QQQ. 
All right, let's talk about SEBIs, though, because you had some work out and worth charting last week. You tweeted this out, I think, on Friday about the SOX, the semiconductor, Philadelphia Semiconductor Index. We know the SMH is the ETF that tracks that. But you said a 22% decline to a well-defined level of support where a rebound potential is high buy. So given the backdrop of what we just talked about with the SPX and the NDX, is this just a short-term buy playing for some sort of bounce? I know you have a lot of charts. Walk us through it. Sure. I mean, this is so aggressively down, right? If you look at 22% versus the S&P at 13 versus the QQQ a little bit more, but not as much as this. This seems so overdone and it's to such a precise level that I think you get the bounce for a trade. Now you're seeing that today. Semis are up, I think, top of the board in terms of aggregates, but it's a short-term thing, right? Try to catch a bounce and make some money. I like how you put that out, by the way, Friday at 6.02 p.m., right after the great options action, which you star on each week, Carter. That's well done. Big tech earnings, because you talked about a couple of them, Apple and Microsoft, obviously, I think, assuage the concerns of a lot of people. And by the way, if you watch any of the shows we've been doing, we've been talking about Apple finding support at 157. Well, guess what it did? Now you see the stock north of 170. But we got some big kahunas left here. So let's, as they say, slide it, Earl, and take a look. Yeah, no, no, no. But, uh, you know, we just want to talk about some of those implied moves, I guess. It makes sense because, you know, we saw them get really jacked, you know, into Apple, into Microsoft because it corresponded with like those big wild moves in the NASDAQ. So here we have, we have, you know, a settling of the NASDAQ here, but we have some really big names. We have Alphabet on Tuesday. We have Meta, which is Facebook on Wednesday, and we have Amazon on Thursday. That's the one that's really going to kind of, for me, be most important here. But the implied moves, man, 4% in either way for Alphabet. Alphabet, you know, the day after earnings on Wednesday for Facebook, five and a half percent implied move. Amazon, again, a four and a half percent implied move, pretty much in line with the way that these stocks have moved over the last four quarters. But Amazon's the one to me, Carter, just given how sharply it declined from its highs prior to the market selling off. I'm just curious if you have some thoughts on that when you have a prior market leader and we know that Amazon went sideways for the better part of 2021 here and it really under Performed many of its large cap peers, had that breakout, failed on fundamental news last summer or into the fall here. And so I guess my question is like, if I'm looking for opportunistic, like, like trading levels, Amazon, because of that poor relative strength, if the fundamentals were to turn, this one could start to outperform some of its mega cap peers. I think that's right. And if you were to look at the pattern of Google, let's say it's identical to Microsoft, right? It's 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 rolled 100 days, just bending down. Facebook, similar. This is idiosyncratic, right? Amazon is really the pattern of the Russell 2000, the big range, the attempted breakout, the failure at the bottom of the range, but trying to fight back. And so the question is, do you really trade this? If you think if you want to or have to, I'd rather trade up into the middle of the zone. But sometimes, and this is important, it's best not to do anything or in a, in a way to strangle this thing. If you were in the options business, selling volatility that it maybe it moves back to the range, but that it's not going to collapse. Uh, that would be my judgment. And it's not really going to rally all that much because the higher you go here, you encounter overhead supply. It's interesting because I thought Amazon, the back half of this year, I think Dan agrees with this as well. I mean, we, I didn't think we'd get this low, by the way. I didn't think you'd breach 3000, but okay, here we are. But I also thought that Amazon might be the stock that sort of outperforms for the better part of 2022. And I think we're on the, you look at this chart and it suggests maybe we did enough work on the downside where the next six, seven months in Amazon 
Could be months we haven't seen in a while. This is a stock that's traded sideways effectively for the last year, year and a half. Yeah, so Carter, let me ask you this, though. If we have like poor guidance here, or at least investors are not willing to buy it down 20-some percent after whatever they hear on their call in, in a few days from now, this thing's going back to 2,500. And then my question to you is, when you have a prior market leader like this that is just technically broken and the fundamentals aren't great and people are now starting to focus on you know, valuation, is it just going to be dead money? And is that prior support just below 3,000, does that become just epic technical resistance? All the things you said, I'm driving it. It's really basically what a pair of twos is. It's sort of fair money, dead money. Can it bounce? It is a little bit. But this is is burden. It's just a harder fight, right? There are. It's very hard to find great inflection points. We all know that. And that's what we're trying to do, all of us, whether you're finding inflection points on the balance sheet or the income statement or on the chart. But is this at a great moment where you say, wow, this is 70, 30, yeah. this is 80, 20? No. And so that, that's the issue. Yeah. So Carter, last week, you know, we were just talking about it before we turned the uh, the cameras on here. You know, Microsoft and Apple kind of did what they needed to do to stabilize, you know, and, you know, Microsoft right out of the gate was showing, you know, after showing amazing relative strength, you know, all of 2021, when the market corrected, it really didn't have greater than a 10% peak to trough decline, which is not could be said about Apple. Apple sold off nearly 20% in Q1 in 2021. Amazon, we were just talking about, had a lot of weakness. Facebook had a lot of weakness off its highs, but they did what they needed to do. And they stabilized at least the narrative that the NASDAQ was totally falling apart. If Alphabet, Facebook, and Amazon aren't that bad, meaning like they don't go you know, materially lower, is the NASDAQ in good shape here? Because we know that a lot of the much smaller names in the index have already crashed. You know what I'm saying? And so could these five names save the NASDAQ here? Well, it gets back to sort of what one's time frame is. Can they halt the decline, the declines halted on a day-to-day basis right now by virtue of what you said, Apple acting better and, and so forth, Microsoft holding up, acting better. Were they all to do the same thing? What's remarkable is that still because of the damage done and because of the break below trend and the 150 million average flattening, it's very hard to advance a lot further from here, meaning sure the ricochet off the low can continue. But it's not likely to repair the circumstance at hand, which is this is an important 10% plus sell-off in arguably the most important aggregate or followed ETF QQQ. What's interesting is Dan mentioned it earlier, and I read the same note that people are buying put protection seemingly in record amounts in terms of dollars. And you know that works to be some of a sort of a circuit or a speed bump, let's just say, on the downside. So the accelerated moves that we've seen over the last couple of weeks will probably be mitigated somewhat by the fact that people now have protection in place. But it doesn't mean they're going to be wrong, Carterworth. I think a lot of people look at that as a contraindicator. I just think that means things might slow down, but it doesn't mean the move lower is over by any stretch of the imagination. No, it doesn't. And and if it is, instead of outright directional bets in the option market, if it is hedging, Hedging is a is a complicated thing because no one ever you buy insurance, but you don't stand on your front lawn then and go outside and say, burn, baby, burn. I mean, you never really want your insurance to pay off, but you kind of gotta have it. So so Carter, you know, 
Guy was mentioning, don't fight the Fed. So if that's the mantra when they're easing and and monetary policy is just going to be soft and they're kind of basically, you know, kind of dictating that, you know, it's going to be the case that, you know, they like to jawbone that sort of thing. Here we are, you know, the 10-year just really is at those levels. I think you said last week on the market call where it was a year ago at 1.78 or something like that. But it's that two-year. That's the thing that they've been kind of indicating that the Fed funds is going to be going higher. And and people are expecting at least three rate hikes of 25 basis points this year, maybe as many as five. Well, if you do the math with the two-year at 1.2, and it was what, guy? 0.2, basically, a year ago, you get four hikes right there-ish, right? So I guess my question to you is how closely at this point with the equity markets having already corrected, how important is interest rate volatility right now to the ability for stocks to kind of find some footing or possibly make new lows and head lower, you know, getting to maybe a 20% peak to trough decline? I mean, I think that ultimately is what we're looking at because if and as they stay on course, and that's highly debated, if we look at the flattening of the curve, whether it's the 210s or the 530s, All of that suggests that what lies ahead is not as, put it this way, as easygoing as the past 18 to 24 months. So- So Yeah. So, Guy, you've been in the markets a long time here. And, you know, flattening yield curves is not something that like equity people are chit-chatting about all the time, but it's really important. And to you, the way that the yield curve has gotten a lot flatter over the last couple months is important. Talk to us a little bit about how equity investors should be thinking about that flattening yield curve. And you've been saying 30 basis points. You've been saying that for actually weeks now, and it looks like you're not going to be far off from being right. Yeah, I thought we'd we thought we'd do it in the form of sort of you know one forty five, one seventy five, one fifty, one eighty. Doesn't matter, but it's getting close, and I think it's surprising a lot of people. What does it mean for equity investors? Well, what is it telling you? What is that? What is that ratio telling you? It's telling you, you got problems in the front end. The Fed's behind the curve. You have inflationary concerns on the front, and on the back end, you have a stubborn ten year, which is suggestive of slowing and lagging growth. And you know we've said it all the time. Danny Moses has talked about it seemingly for months on on the tape. That is not a healthy environment. That's a stagflation environment that the Fed sort of can't weave their way out of. It's a very difficult eye to to thread the needle, you know, to thread that needle. And I don't think they're going to be able to do it. So when valuations don't matter in a different paradigm, I think they matter so much more now. And oh, by the way, you know, what does it say about the economic climate? What does it say about the landscape? And what does it say about the earning ability for a lot of these companies? Yeah. So one of the things that is interesting, we spent a lot of time talking about tech because those names that, you know, again, those five make up, what, 25% of the S&P 500. But one of the things that's interesting, and Carter, your your take was, well, I expect the S&P 500 to make a run at its new highs prior to the NASDAQ. It's really important to think about some of the rotations that we see within the S&P 500 here. You know, industrials is always one, like when we're talking about yield curves, we're talking about global reflations, that sort of thing. And then staples, you know, I know that you've been talking about staples for a while. You like some of these defensive sort of sectors here. We have this breakout and breakdown segment here. And again, this is not about the sectors, but it's really interesting to kind of pick out some names within different sectors that might be indicating the direction in which the broader group might go. These two charts are really interesting. Again, no relation. Talk to us a little bit about Philip Morris and Eaton and why they made your radar screen today. Sure. So meaning looking at the first one, Philip Morris, this is whether it's because it's a defensive asset or because actually it has a yield of four plus percent that's covered or that one maybe believes in international tobacco business. It's not about that. What it's about, of course, is this setup. And we have a stock, just do this. How many stocks were unchanged over the past two weeks? 
If you screen for that simple stat alone, it's a very small club of people, meaning that kind of relative strength in the face of a real equity sell-off is important. And it's acting better than Coke over the past two months and Procter and Colgate and almost every staple and the sector. I think this breaks out here and you want to play it on the long side. And I look at Philip Morris, I think they report on the 10th of February, and you, you're looking at a bit of a short-term double top in the form of last August, September, and where we are now. But I think it has room all the way up to 119 or thereabouts, which, by the way, was a prior all-time high, I want to say, in the summer of 2018 or so. I might be off by a couple months. So I'm with you. This is a great-looking chart for sure, and it's suggestive to me that end earnings this rally is going to continue. The flip side of that coin or some of these deep industrial names that we talk about from time to time, and that would be Eaton. Does not look particularly healthy here. Another name that I think the reports this week, I'll check. But while I'm checking, take a look at this chart, Carter Worth. Yes, and, and, and this trend, I mean, this is, could be the chart of the S&P. It could be the chart of the QQQ. In fact, there's your actual trend line. Take a look at the next one. I think we can toggle here. We've got the automated trend line, meaning it's starting to turn flat. It's starting to bend over. It's broken below the 150-day. And you go back to the actual trend line, it's broken below that trend. So, and talk about poor relative strength, not really bouncing. Here's an instance where you want to be cautious, be careful. This is a big one. It's 62 billion and it's top 15 industrials in the S&P. Doesn't act well. Yeah. I mean, and I'll just add this as well. On valuation, this is not a cheap stock at all, by the way. And what this chart doesn't tell you, but if you look a little longer term, I mean, this has been basically a rocket ship to the upside. So this failure here suggests you might have a lot of room to the downside. By the way, Dan Nathan Eaton reports on February 4th. Fair enough. You know, it's interesting to me because I know that there was this rotation, you know, a lot of strategists were calling for, you know, in Q4 when we saw a lot of high valuation tech that clearly corrected, if not crashed. And we saw a lot of sectors that, you know, we started seeing all of those data about how many stocks are below their 200 or as Carter would say, use their 150 days. So you were seeing rotations, you were seeing corrections in a lot of different sectors. But the fact that tech, mega cap tech had not corrected, it was keeping the broad indices very elevated. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why I love seeing charts like Eaton. I love kind of extrapolating a little bit to some of the other names in the sectors, because if we are not in a market where money that is moving out of higher valuation techs that have been the winners, the big drivers, and they can't find a footing in some of these other areas that are maybe more economically sensitive, then that doesn't bode well for the potential of the S&P getting back on its horse, making a new high and starting another leg of the bull market. And, and Carter, we only have a couple minutes here. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this kind of investment environment is that there's so many new market participants who've really not been subject to protracted bear markets, periods where it is one step forward, two steps back. And if you think about March and April and May of 2020, that was really, really quick, right? It was, I think, the quickest 35% drop that we've ever had, but it must have been one of the quickest rallies back to new highs. I think we got there you know, by the summer or something like that. How are market participants who have not experienced like bear markets, how are they to think about this thing? You know, because to me, that's the most important thing. I keep hearing people asking me, what do I buy? What do I buy? Because they're so certain we're going to be going back to highs. It's going to be interesting to see on a day where historically, you know, see the month end markups. Are we going to get that as well today? Right now, it doesn't appear. I think all really interesting and important things to be watching as we continue to move forward. But I think the one thing that I take away 
The Sox seemingly bought him in the short term. The relative outperformance, I think Carter did a great job with that. And the fact that a lot of people come to the realization that maybe we're in this environment where rallies need to be sold as opposed to dips being bought. By the way, Liz Young from SoFi said the same thing a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, she did. I'm just curious, Carter, how you're thinking about this in, in the month end. Is the month end that kind of Jan 31 to Feb 1, is that important in your mind? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's a couple of things. There is also something known as, as January goes, so goes the year. And the stats on that are actually compelling. It's not some magic trick because January is down, the year has to be down. But think about in any endeavor, any undertaking, any venture that starts out poorly. Often it's a harbinger of things to come. Not a good start to the year, one of the top 10 worst Januaries on record. And yes, bounces are a part of preceding sell-offs, but more often than not, it's not the primary data point. The bounce is the secondary data point. Well, we're 30 minutes on the screws today. We're trying to be respectful of time. Today, we finally were able to accomplish that. I want to thank Carter Worth for joining us today. Be sure to follow him on Twitter. Carter B. Worth, if you don't, you're doing Twitter wrong, as I say. And I want to thank to you for tuning in to Market Call Charts. Today's episode was brought to you by our presenting sponsors, FactSet and Open Exchange. If you like what you saw, be sure to tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. Dan and I will be back tomorrow for Market Call Macro. And then again on Thursday for Market Call Street Research with Liz Young. We'll see you then.